and the Podomatic mobile app. Vous avez lu l'histoire de Jesse James Comment il vécu Comment il est mort Ça vous a plu, hein Vous en demandez encore
morning, everybody. This is your host, Joanna Perpich. Welcome to Crime Talk BK. I am in the studio today with a very special guest, Chris Mahan, and we're going to be talking about the Mad Bomber of New York uh, living dangerously back in the day. Uh, Now, before we get... Oh, also, I must apologize. I have a terrible head cold, and Chris has not slept in 24 hours so uh, you're in for a wild ride. So first off, I would like to talk to you guys about uh, Radio Free Brooklyn's teen after school program. Um, I know you guys have been hearing about this for a while, but it is so important to us that you hear about the cool things that we're doing. And also, we're really asking for your support here. Uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is proud to announce that we've been partially funded to start an after-school program for local teens in 2019. This is a really cool opportunity. Uh, We're going to bring the youth into our studio to teach them about media and how to make radio and report on their communities and uh, hopefully find a couple of promising young journalists to continue the legacy of our amazing First Amendment. Um, However, our grant will only go so far And so to make this as awesome as a program as we're planning, we could use a little help from you. Uh, You can uh, find out more information on what we have planned. And also, please donate at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash afterschool. Again, that's RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash afterschool. And uh, thank you so much for your support. Now, on to news of the week. Uh, I have actually become quite quite invested in um, this El Chapo trial. Uh, There's just uh, new things coming up uh, every week. Uh, For those who don't know or who maybe don't support their local news. Sorry, that was a dig. Um, (laughs) I don't know. Do do you have a subscription to the to the Daily News? I didn't think so. Get one. I know, sick burn. Okay. So anyway, um, (coughs) sorry. Uh, Vice published an article possibly connecting El Chapo with a Brooklyn gang called Bushwick Crew. Um, Might I add that not only is our studio in Bushwick, but both of the people in the studio right now live in Bushwick. So this is a little terrifying. Um, so basically while El Chapo is on trial for being a drug kingpin, um, various members of the gang, uh, Bushwick crew are also, uh, going through the courts for their heroin distribution. And, um, Vice has been reporting on this and, uh, they dug into it a bit and found quite a few links between El Chapo and this gang. And uh, let me see. In March 2016, uh, Bushwick crew member Maurice Brown posted a photo of himself on his Instagram holding stacks of cash inside a strip club. Uh, He hashtagged it, Chapo, what was it? Chapo DA boss. And uh, I think that's a pretty strong indication. Oh, it's Chapo da boss. (laughs) 
Um, actually, I realized, Chris, that your mic's not on, so everyone's been missing it. Oh, well, now my hilarious commentary will come to the masses, as it was always meant to be. <coughs> I'm sorry. Um, the cold's uh, making things a little fuzzy. So, anyway, <laughs> hashtag Chapo de Boss, uh, which is one of the many things that has been coming out of this court trial. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, like, this El Chapo case is really hitting home inside your neighborhood. But also, as much fun as it can be to do drugs, I strongly advise not being a dealer. That's where the real trouble is. Okay. Also, Thursday, uh... Branley Gonzalez was sentenced to one and a half to four years behind bars for beating up 69-year-old Luca Bravo in Inwood last May. The fight began when Bravo catcalled Gonzalez's girlfriend. Uh, Gonzalez then, as you do, severely beat the man uh, and he had brain damage so bad that he died five days after the attack. Um... Now, while I don't condone catcalling, I think that there's probably more appropriate responses than literally beating the living shit out of someone. Thursday, three Democratic uh, judicial candidates have been added to the ballot of the Brooklyn Civil Court in November's election. They are Anne Swern, Jill Epstein, and Rupert Berry. Uh, As of Friday, there are no Republican or independent nominees to oppose them. You can find out more about them on the Brooklyn Eagle. And, of course, um, I will be updating you um, as we find out more information about these nominees. Uh, It's so important for us to keep up with local politics. And as we have um, been listening with uh, this uh, Brett Kavanaugh nomination Well, I mean, I guess with Brett Kavanaugh, of course, it's pretty serious because it's the Supreme Court. But judges on the local level uh, have a lot of influence, too, on um, both uh, criminal justice policies and uh, on people's lives. So uh, I know that uh, these are things that at least I didn't pay very much attention to before being really interested in this topic. But it's an important thing for you guys to know. Now, on Friday, uh, Stephen Pigeon, uh, bless him for that last name, hmm. uh, <coughs> he is a um, kind of a political mover and shaker in Albany with ties to Cuomo and the Clintons. Faces up to one year behind bars after pleading guilty to a felony, felony charge of third-degree bribery. Uh, he was accused of ge- engaging in a years-long mutually beneficial bribery scheme with State Supreme Court Justice John Michalek, who previously resigned after pleading guilty to, I'm assuming, similar charges. Uh, Now, according to the Attorney General's office, uh, the judge um, was asking favors from Pigeon and uh, including hope finding work for family members. That is called nepotism, guys. And that is... Wow, I should not do that straight into the mic. That is uh, basically illegal to show favoritism to uh, family members. 
um, from a uh, point of power. And so uh, this is pretty disgusting. Um, I know there's been a lot of talk of cleaning out the swamp these past couple of years. Hopefully the swamp in Albany is slowly and steadily being drained. Uh, but I mean, I don't think that Cuomo comes out of this looking particularly good if the people that he associate with are taking bribes. I agree. <laughs> Pearls of wisdom. <coughs> All right. And now uh, on to Brett Kavanaugh. The New York Bar Association has called for the FBI um, to investigate into uh, Brett Kavanaugh following allegations of sexual assault. Uh, Now, I have to say, I might be judging you if you have not heard of what's going on with Brett Kavanaugh. I'm sorry. What turned on the news? This is like a very serious thing that he's been accused of. He's been accused of... um, because what like attempted rape of uh, showing this one woman his dick during a party, just like whipping it out in front of her face while his buddies cackle in the background. Um, and uh, I don't know. This is maybe not something that we want our Supreme Court justices to have a history in. Anyway, uh, so Dr. Christine Ford testified on Thursday to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Is that the name of it? Um, you'll have to ask someone more versed in uh, congressional politics. Come on, Chris. I'm oh. looking at you. Why don't you have all the answers? Um, I, I wish I did. I'd be a different person then. But um, sadly, Chris is only an expert in crimes of the past. <laughs> but uh, <coughs> no, I think the reason why this is so serious is because... Um, well, okay. So the New York Bar Association... Is stepping, is stepping in to say that um, they think that there needs to be an FBI investigation, which would be the natural next step. Although there's been some political grandstanding about whether or not um, everyone should just like ram through Kavanaugh's um, nomination. nomination or if this investigation is really necessary. Uh, now, the... Uh, President of the bar of New York's Bar Association, um, Michael Miller, uh, is quoted saying, "We believe that it is essential to the rule of law in our nation and to the reputation of the Supreme Court that all Americans have confidence in that candidates from the court are reviewed fairly and thoroughly, and that only an FBI investigation will give them that confidence." Um, now, it actually does look like there will be an FBI investigation. I was listening to NPR's politics podcast this morning. Shout out to them. They're amazing. Um, I listened to them in the shower. And uh, they were saying that it looks like uh, an FBI investigation will be moving forward. Now, this is not a criminal investigation. This is more of an intense um, background check uh, to see uh, whether or not these allegations have weight. Um, however, they're only being given a week to uh, search through basically three different accusations. Um, some are doubting whether or not that is enough time. Um, there's also some political machinations going on with all of this, uh, but that is for another time. Uh, now, one thing I will say, though, is, is that um, the Kavanaugh hearing has been very emotional 
for women across the country because this is something that a lot of women have had experience with. Um, basically, everyone I know has um, been like a sexually sexually assaulted or harassed um, or even raped. Uh, this is not something that just happens to like these anonymous women on TV bashing your favorite politician. This is truly affecting half of the country. And uh, I just think that that is something to keep in mind when um, considering when considering whether or not uh, these women are believable, and I personally think that they are. So, moving forward with my inability to do transitions, oh, yeah. we will now be talking about uh, George Metesky, the mad bomber of New York. And Chris, I know that you've been looking into this over the past week or so. Yeah, me and the New York Times from 50 years ago. Um, this was a really heavily reported case. Um, a lot of different publications covered it. It was a huge story back in its day. Um, probably, I mean, at the time, it was one of the largest manhunts, police manhunts in New York history uh, until, I think, probably Son of Sam, which we spoke about last time. And so one of the reasons I'm almost even treating this show as a part two of the Son of Sam episode because um, really the second episode came out of us wanting to talk more on criminal profiling, which appeared a bit in Son of Sam. Um, but the Mad Bomber hmm. is one of the first cases of criminal profiling being used, <clears throat> at least to, in, through the involvement of with a murderer. Although I, did he he didn't kill anybody though, did he? Um, I believe. Let's take a see here. He injured about fifteen people. One of them severely. Um, I think that person may have died after going into a coma. Um, so t- it was indirect murder in that sense. But I believe he was. Uh, he wasn't trying to murder people, according to him. But you know what? Putting pipe bombs in people's theater seats. Not sure what you expect to happen. Random disregard for safety so let's do some like scene setting here like talk to me a little bit about the uh the first incident i guess and like what was going on back then well i think to really tell the story you have to start with um the motivation which i think for both you and i is a familiar one at least here in new york which is uh con edison so George Metesky was born in 1903 in Connecticut. Um, he was working for Con Ed at a, um, a plant in New York, uh, age 28, when he had a uh, industrial accident. It wasn't like a, a special one that gave him like powers, like Superman or I'm sorry, that's not. I mean, the Joker, I guess. Spider Man. No, well, that wasn't even an industrial <laughs> accident. But anyways, putting that aside, so uh, he apparently was exposed to some really uh, toxic hot gases which gave him uh, pneumonia, which developed into tuberculosis. And um, after receiving about 26 weeks of part pay from Con Edison for kind of workers' comp, he was fired. And from there, he uh, realized, I'm going to be bedridden for most of my life at that point. And I have no recourse because his appeals to, uh, to get more conversation from Con Ed were denied. And he decided the best way to deal with the situation was to uh, start making bombs and distributing them. Um, the first one was outside of a windowsill um, on a Con Ed facility, and it had a note attached to it. it didn't explode, um, and it was a message to uh, the Con Ed people saying, 
you crooks. Essentially, this is for you crooks and Con Edison. I actually think I have his... Uh, oh, do you have, do you have the note? Yeah. Uh, so I was actually reading a book about this on my Kindle. Um, <coughs> I think my favorite phrasing was, was that he would say, like, the dastardly Con Edison. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is during the 19, uh, 1940s and such. Uh, so I guess it wasn't laughable to call someone dastardly back then. I but mean... It- Judging from how the newspapers responded to it, it was still a little strange. Um, although I do wish that I lived in a world where um, if a cabbie splashed me with rainwater, I could <laughs> shake my fist to the sky. You dastardly ca- yellow cab. I mean, you can. You just, no one's going to, doesn't matter what people think about you. It's true. I guess that's true. In New York, you're never going to be the weirdest person on the block. <laughs> Very true. Oh, so yeah, he wrote, Con Edison, crooks, this is for you. Yeah, uh, essentially uh, pretty unmistakable. <laughs> What's strange is that they're not sure whether or not he intended the uh, the bomb to explode, because if it did, it would have destroyed the letter. Um, so, I mean, this kind of plays into the, uh, the organized and unorganized way he went about his uh, bombing campaign. Uh, so what are these bombs? They're just what, like pipe bombs? Yeah, so they were usually copper tubes, um, pipes that he filled with gunpowder, uh, mostly pistol gunpowder, not shotgun, because he thought the um, shotgun powder didn't have enough uh, explosive power behind it. <laughs> so they were very crude, um, but they were, I mean, compared to like Ted Kaczynski or something, they were pretty simple, but ingenious, I guess, for us. Oh, and Ted Kaczynski is the Unabomber, right? Yeah, that, that's right. Um, I mean, Ted Kaczynski's bombs were pretty complex compared to his his used um i think sugar as a um as a firing mechanism um because he had to equip the timer and the fuse as he was uh setting up these bombs and several of them didn't go off because he didn't have the fuse set um they usually used a uh, a watch watch framed kind of as a timer um so he had cheap pocket watches attached to these bombs so chris Uh question yeah how long did you spend researching how to build a bomb for this episode well hey you know what <laughs> during the time that mad bombers campaign was going on people were reporting friends and neighbors that knew a little bit too much about bombs so if you want to continue that legacy of, of fear and paranoia by all means continue accusing me in front of thousands of people <laughs> but anyways <coughs> back to my uh, accounting of the crime so um yeah, uh, he started. Um, he started setting bombs with Con Edison. Um, I think. Uh, let me take a see here. Yeah, so he started making bombs in 1940. Um, continued for about a year or so, and then World War II happened. And at this point, he was already trying to make contact with different um, news organizations. In 1941, he said he would stop his bombing campaign until the war was over. Oh, I have this letter too. Yeah. Would you like to read it? I, I have to get the voice right. Oh, okay. <coughs> this is high theater now. <coughs> Sorry, that was a bit more robust of a cough than I was planning. I will make no more bomb units for the duration of the war. My patriotic feelings have made me decide this. Later, I will bring the Con Edison to justice. They must pay for their dastardly deeds. Yeah. 
I mean, if you're looking for just like Saturday morning cartoon villain writing, that's essentially, I mean, right there. Um, so a little bit of background on uh, Metesky. He was a Marine uh, formerly. So that may have played a part in his, uh, his decision not to keep planting bombs during the war. But um, after the war ended, um, he started setting bombs again. Uh, he came back in 1951. So there's a little bit of an interlude after the war ended. Um, and he started setting a lot of bombs, um, mostly in major New York landmarks like uh, Grand Central Station. Did one in that uh, radio city. Didn't he blow up the oyster bar? Uh, he, <laughs> blow up is a strong word. I believe they found a bomb near the oyster bar. Wasn't there some mild smoking in a corner of the oyster bar? Yes, that's more accurate. Um, these are not powerful bombs. Um, I believe only 15 people were injured. Um, now that I think about it, I don't think anyone actually died directly from the bombs. Uh, I'll correct myself earlier. And then the one big one was the in that movie theater, right? The Paramount. Um, so, I mean, before the Paramount, there was a number of bombings. Bombs exploded in theaters. He had a special technique where he would use a pen knife to cut open the, uh, the cushion in a seat in a theater and put a bomb inside the cushion and then leave the pen knife in there. Um, just so he wouldn't be caught with it later. And he would set the uh, the timers and then just walk away. Um, what was strange is that some of these bombs that he placed, especially ones like the New York Library, were placed months earlier and were found before they exploded. Um, but some of the ones in the theaters, um, yeah, were ready to blow up in someone's lap, almost literally. And that's what happened in the Paramount Theater. But before that happened, he was placing a, a lot of, um, of bombs around different places in New York, sometimes in the same locations multiple times. And the police were finding these bombs or getting reports of them. And they were told, basically, keep it quiet. Don't tell people about this. Don't cause a panic until the Paramount Theater. So at this point, as, as far as the police investigation goes, how much work is being done on this? Like, were there any leads or was it just like another day in the office, we found some sort of weird bomb? Um, before the uh, the big kind of push to uh, to make this an official investigation, a public one, uh, I I'm not sure about the extent of manpower that's put onto it, but um, it was not something that they were making a priority. What was very strange about this was that they didn't have many leads about who was doing this because of the erratic placement and the um, the kind of strange motivation behind it. Um, Metesky was making contact with a number of newspapers. Um, most famously later on would be the, let's see, the New York, um, New York Journal American. Yeah. New York Journal American. But that was after things became very heated, um, and things started to, uh, kind of pick up in the public eye. So newspapers were receiving a lot of these letters from Metesky, um, but the police really weren't able to kind of connect the dots and find this guy. I mean, other commentators, especially authors remark that he looks like your neighbor, he can get in and out of places relatively easily um, and without much notice. He doesn't look like the kind of crazy uh, mad bomber that he's got the, the moniker for. So you're saying he didn't, like, have cartoon villain hair and... Yeah, he, he didn't look like he had, um, you know, something crazy going on with him, even though a lot of photos of him after being arrested have this kind of dastardly grin, if I can use his own term. And how many? How long was this going on for? I mean, you said that this was like before World War, the World War, and then mm-hmm. assuming after, so that's the number of years. Yeah. So the second bombing um, iteration or campaign lasted from 1951 to 1956. So, um, I'm sorry. 
a lot of people kind of frame this as it took 15 years to find this guy, um, which is a little bit misleading because for several years he was dormant. He wasn't sending out any bombs um, and he wasn't really being a threat. But um, for the five years that he was operating, he distributed about, I mean, 33 bombs in total. But over the, the 1951-1956 period, he was putting a lot of bombs in a lot of places and a lot of them were being found. Um, and once the Paramount Theater went down, people were asking, why is it taking you so long to find this guy? Heat on NYPD. Yeah. Um, there's a couple different books uh, about it, Incendiary. Um, then there's just The Mad Bomber of New York. Um, different people kind of frame the, the narrative differently. Some people kind of cast uh, the editor, um, one of the journalists connected to the New York uh, Journal-American, Seymour Berkson, as kind of the the guy who is the uh, the analog to the son of Sam uh, tabloid race. He's the guy that's trying to like get people uh, scared about this guy and trying to get him to talk to the, the journal to, for publicity. Um, Berkson has since denied, I mean, that it was kind of a ploy to gain um, to gain notoriety. But uh, but there's an incredible amount of fear going through New York at that point because he could just be anywhere. You don't know when the bombs are going to hit. Um, People describe it as, as kind of a state of, of hysteria, similar, to, again, to um, to uh, the son of Sam. But, of course, in this case, it was it was bombs instead of being shot in your car. I don't know which one's worse. I think I'd almost be more afraid of the bombs. <coughs> um, I think, in a lot of ways, he kind of parallels modern domestic terrorism. Um, but I, I, in terms of goals and, and, um, and capabilities, I think he was pretty limited. I mean, in his mind, he was blowing up bombs in public to draw attention to what Con Ed did to him. And it wasn't like, I, they blew me up, so I'm going to blow you up. It's, this is the only way I can get attention. Please pay attention to my crusade against Con Ed. Also, I'm going to murder, I'm going to murder or injure people using this method. There's not a really a strong connection there. But it seems like that the murders were very much, or that the... Hurting people thing mm-hmm. was secondary. Yeah. Um, he said in letters and in interviews that he really didn't mean to hurt anybody. He apologized for scaring people in a letter. Um, he said that it wasn't his intention to hurt, to hurt folks. Um, but, of course, that's a little bit irresponsible. And that was one of the, the counts that he was eventually indicted on was a malicious endangerment of life. Do you have any other of those letters that you could want to read? I know that you were saying that it was a bit of a um, tabloid race. Um, I don't have any of the, the letters here. I think if you have any more text, you can read, especially the one um, to Seymour Burks of the Native uh, Native American Journal or the <laughs> Journal. Hold on, I'm trying to find um, a good one. All right, so one letter that he wrote, uh, which I think is pretty telling in terms of his motive, was bombs will continue until Consolidated Edison Company is brought to justice for their dastardly acts against me. I have exhausted all other means. I intend right. with bombs to cause others to cry out for justice for me. Yeah, and that's the kind of um, the kind of narrative I was speaking about before, how this is how he was trying to gain attention and cause people somehow to come to his side. And wasn't there also, uh, so I actually, as I was saying earlier, um, I was reading a book that devoted a chapter to him, and they were saying that um, at first the police didn't want reporters to release these letters and then right. as 
he started to escalate with that theater bombing, they decided to kind of enter into a bit of a dialogue with him, you right. could say, through that one newspaper. Yeah, the uh, the New York Journal-American um, started communicating with him pretty regularly. They started by offering um, kind of a, an open letter saying if he spoke to them, they could potentially arrange for him to get a um, a fair trial, maybe some, some leniency, some understanding. And uh, one... Um, other letter I have, I think, in response to that note that you just mentioned. Mm. He says, have you noticed the bombs in your city? If you're worried, I am sorry. And also, if anyone is injured, but it cannot be helped. For justice will be served. I am not well. And for this, I will make the Con Edison sorry. Yes, they will regret their dastardly deeds. I will bring them before the bar of justice. Public opinion will condemn them. For beware. I will place more units under theater seats in the near future. FP. Right. Um, and he signed all of his letters FP. And when they finally asked him why, he said it stood for fair play. So again, that's the kind of kind of justice narrative in his, his mind that this is all about um, righting the wrongs Con Ed made to him. So I know that earlier you made a joke about how he's not Spider-Man. He didn't get any of these like secret powers. But no. in a way, he is kind of doing this like comic book vigilante justice. Yeah, you're right. I actually hadn't thought about that. Um, I guess in his mind, he's uh, maybe not a hero, but he is someone that's striking back with uh, with justice in mind, despite the fact that, I mean, he's committing more crimes and hurting more people. Um, I think, um, I take a seat here. The, uh, the idea that he refers to Con Edison as the Con Edison, and that uh, he seems to be kind of framing himself as uh, a vigilante or something that brings justice to this organization uh, makes me think, you know, through the way he frames himself, sort of like Ted Kaczynski as a revolutionary um, in his mind, he, he sees himself as playing a bigger role than, than something that's, oh, this is my grievance, I need to do something. The fact that he also refers to the, the bombs as units and really refers to them actually as bombs is also something I think um, modern profilers would pick up on. Um, you know, someone might say, oh, he's not referring to them as bombs. He wants to distance himself from the reality that he's bombing people. Uh, that, that'd be my own, own personal interpretation. But So how did he eventually get caught? It seems like he was fine under the radar, so to speak, for a while. Well, this is an interesting and kind of a questionable saga about how he was actually caught. So the police are asking Con Edison because... You know, who else are you going to talk to besides the one organization that the bomber is threatening again and again? They asked um, asked them for records. Um, they said, are there any employees that might want to do harm to your company? And Con Edison apparently responded to them by saying that all their employee records were destroyed um, after a certain or before a certain date, um, including George Metesky's, George Metesky's. And uh, it turned out that wasn't true. It turned out that um, Con Edison were throwing up some some barriers saying like their legal team, oh, oh, we found these documents, but you can't look at them until our legal team um, understands uh, what their what the uh, the rights are to look at these. Um, eventually, Con Edison's um, internal affairs kind of clerks found uh, uh, some files for troublesome former employees. Troublesome being they made threats or they were angry at Con Edison or they made a, a big stink. And uh, Alice Kelly, who was... Um, one of their uh, their clerks found his file, um, and it had a couple words in it that 
struck um, that that matched up with what he was saying in his letters, including dastardly and injustice. <laughs> I'm just thinking that like dastardly is such a specific word. And he used it multiple times, apparently. So uh, that was one of the key uh, key kind of breaks in the case was finding this guy who matched all the criteria, angry at Con Edison, had these sorts of skills as a, a mechanic that with a, like a lathe that could cut these pipes to the right uh, right specifications, and he was pissed at Con Ed, and he was uh, using the term dastardly. And he was uh, around the right right time for this to start uh, start happening now, or I guess then. So what what was funny was that the police had uh, had promised a twenty six thousand dollar reward for it, the detective that broke the case or that arrested Metesky, um, and they offered it to Alice Alice Kelly, and she's like, "No, I'm just doing my job." And I, I think I checked with the inflation calculator on the uh, on the U.S. government website. Twenty six thousand dollars would be about two hundred forty thousand dollars today. I think I would have taken that. Yeah, so would I. Um, <coughs> People were more noble back then. I suppose so. With the exception of our bomber friend, I guess. I mean, even he stopped bombing people for World War II. It's patriotism, man. Um, yeah, I don't feel like anyone would like stop that for a war these days. Yeah, but anyways. So Alice Kelly was really the one that kind of broke the case. She broke it, I believe, in January. And like the next day, they sent over some people to a discreet check on his his house. Um which led to them opening up the door and saying, hey, we're, we're going to uh, gonna arrest you, George Metesky. And he was in his pajamas when they, they did this. And he immediately started like admitting to the crime and showing them his garage full of uh, bomb-making tools. And there's an interesting tie-in to that pajamas uh, detail and the profiling. Should we start talking about the profiling portion of the case? I think so. All right. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, all right. So, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the profiling or are you throwing the ball in my court? I'm going to throw it all your way. Okay. So, uh, as far as George Metesky's, uh, profiling goes, hold on, let me scroll feverishly through my notes. Sure. I'll entertain the audience with some light music. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I was going to say that is definitely a lot more distracting. (laughs) All right. So basically, you have the Mad Bomber and um, the NYPD uh, was. Now, this is before, of course, they talked to our uh, employee of the year. Right. 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 Um, So, like, at this point in the case, yeah. There's like these bombs going off everywhere and the NYPD is stuck in possibly feeling a little panicked about their inability to get a lead on this case. Uh, so they asked a uh, psychiatrist, James Brussel in the 1950s to work up a profile on him. And uh, after we finish talking specifically about uh, the mad bomber and criminal profiling, we'll go a little bit more into the history, hmm. but basically Criminal profiling was still super new. Someone had managed to successfully profile Hitler. Um, There were some attempts at profiling Jack the Ripper. Uh, But for the most part, this was akin to hiring like a TV psychic. 
like not something that is usually done really kind of a Hail Mary on Hmm. investigators' parts. Anyway, so James Russell just starts pouring over these letters. He is trying to figure out what evidence they have. Um, Just going over the case file again and again. And he made some assumptions. He decided that the bomber was male. He was likely a former employee of Con Ed. No. Who, I know, right? Shocking. Who had been uh, wronged in some way, as blatantly indicated in some of the letters. Right. Uh, He also thought that he was middle-aged, meticulous, and self-educated. Did not think that he'd gone to college. This is based off of, uh, like, the writing patterns and also probably the crudeness of the bombs themselves. Uh, It was very hit or miss Mm. in terms of their effectiveness. Mm, And uh, they also thought that it was likely that he was from Connecticut and possibly foreign Mm. because um, it didn't seem like the way that he was using his words were of a natural English speaker. So, for example, he would say, the Con Edison, whereas... As we all know, everyone would usually just say Con Edison or I guess these days Con Ed. Mm. And uh, so that did narrow down the pool to some degree. Now, the real kicker that gets me so excited about this Mm. is is that I don't know why he included this, but Brussel in his note wrote, oh, and when you arrest him, it's likely that he will be wearing a buttoned double-breasted suit yeah so anyway chris back to your story so they walk into his house he starts spilling his guts uh showing them all of his tools in uh, his garage including the lathe which they had predicted to cut the bombs and they said uh all right we're going to take you downtown um and he said all right uh, let me let me change so he goes in his bedroom and he comes out wearing a double-breasted shirt buttoned up um, and nailed it just like that. I was not expecting that because you'll sometimes hear in these profiles or like when we go through the profile of Hitler, there's like all these like super specific weird quirks that I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't think I would ever have enough confidence in myself as mm-hmm. a profiler to add some of these hyper specific details. Yeah. It's like he enjoys granola bars <laughs> and just, Wait, and then, like you open the counter and it's like in Seinfeld where they have like every single different type. <laughs> but um, <coughs> that double-breasted suit detail. But oh, yeah. Nail it. I, I was, uh, that was a very like surprising and just one of those sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction moments mm. yeah. about this case. But what I really like about this is, is that this really validated criminal profiling for investigators and this is one of the first times of it being used very effectively uh now of course as chris was saying it's not exactly like this description necessarily wholly broke the case Mm. but there were some details that were used Mm. uh for um the woman's shortlist so for example they knew that he worked at con ed they knew that there had been some sort of accident involving him and uh I'm assuming that um, their assumption that he was foreign also probably helped with 
narrowing it down or came from a foreign family. Well, actually, uh, if I remember correctly, he was born in Connecticut. Um, he was born there, but he was of immigrant um, parents. Ah. And, uh, well, at least according to the book that I read. Uh-huh. Like, uh, it but, doesn't sound like he was... Well, I, if I remember correctly, one of the, the clues they had was the strange speech, um, which kind of like clued them in they might not be a native English speaker, but he was. Um, the other thing was that at this point, they uh, they thought that bombs were indicative of someone of this of Slavic descent, because in Eastern Europe they they were big fans of uh, of bombs, like uh, you know the, the the black hand that tried to uh, assassinate Archduke Ferdinand, um, things like that. So those were two ideas that gave him uh, the or two two points of facts that uh, gave him the idea that he might be of Slavic descent. Um, neither actually ended up panning out, but he did have immigrant parents. Apparently. I think that he was of Slavic descent, wasn't he? Um, I didn't actually check on that because to me, I mean, to me, the two points that they were trying to base that on end up being false along with, um, I mean, you could argue about this, but they thought that his W's were very curved that it implied a, uh, implied breasts or, or scrotum and maybe a, a latent edible complex. So there's a number of things. Plus, I mean, he was 10 years older than uh, they predicted. Um, he was, uh, there's a number of other things that uh, that Brussels tried to use as as a basis for this that ended up not being quite true, but he was fastidious. He was didn't have a college education. Um, he did have a double wristed sh- shirt on, um, and he was uh, he he did fit some of the other parts of the profile. I was to say you're busting my double breasted suit bubble. <laughs> I mean, hey, I, I mean, even Brussels himself admitted. This profiling technique was a mixture of, of science, hope, and intuition. This was at the very, like, you know, dividing voodoo from, from science, that, that sort of frontier. Um, but I think whether or not it was accurate, it gave people the idea that you can profile somebody. You can figure out something about them by the way that they uh, um, communicate, by the way that they, uh, they leave clues behind, the way their method works. And I think that's still valuable. Yeah, and he also, uh, like, as I said, as people became start taking the science more seriously, we start to gain more into the mind hunter yeah. realm. Did you watch that show? I did not. Oh, you shame me. It's quite good, guys. I recommend it. Uh, some of the dialogues a bit stilted in the beginning, uh, but basically it's about the FBI Academy creating this unit, the behavioral science unit, to really go through criminal profiling. Um, but basically, so Mad Bomber, 1950s. 20 years later... The FBI launched the Behavioral Science Unit um, as kind of like this wing off of the FBI Academy. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of different agents who went around interviewing serial killers. John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. Jeffrey Dahmer. I love Jeffrey Dahmer, but dude, you really creeped me out. Yeah. yeah. The uh, But the info was collected to form this national database to help police profile violent offenders. And um, there was, uh, so they brought in specialists on sex crimes, child abuse, satanic rituals, Mm. and they were just trying to figure out what does a criminal look like? Are there ways of not predicting whether or not someone would do a crime, but are there other indicators to help shrink down the suspect pool that we can use? So you have these seemingly random killings that are really scaring everybody. How do you go from the entire population of New York City 
to maybe 20 people that you can actually do a full investigation on. And that's kind of more of the purpose of criminal profiling. It's not like you're going to find like that one exact person. It's more to just help narrow down the pool. Mm. And actually, people have been... Oh, and I'm just going to take a moment. Shout out to John Edward Douglas of Brooklyn uh, in the 1980s. Uh, he would go around to all these prisons and collect for these databases. And he actually wrote uh, two of the most influential books on profiling. Uh, so represent. Hell yeah. And uh, But as far as trying to understand what makes someone a criminal, this is something that has basically gone back to the dawn of time and something that made me really excited about the history of criminal profiling is, is that the very first recorded case of criminal profiling uh, actually comes from witch hunts during the late 1400s. What a great endorsement of criminal profiling. I know we're really reaching back in history here. Uh and so there's this book that was written in 1486 in Germany called Malleus Malficarium. Oh, the witch's hammer. No way. Yeah. Oh, man, I thought I was going to surprise you with that. No, I didn't realize that I had some profiling tips. Well, did it just say if she has a long nose or if she goes out at night or cavorts at night? Yeah, basically. It was oh, all well, bullshit. <laughs> but this is the first example of someone trying to uh, like look at quote-unquote deviant behavior of being a woman oh absolutely uh, you can't trust him with uh but there is like a criminal profiling angle to this well hmm. it's it's interesting because uh i mean some people i, I mean uh, ted kaczynski is a great example of um people trying to say um that you're insane you're not going to be fit to stand trial you go to prison now and we're not going to um to speak of it anymore because society recognizes you as being uh, abnormal or um, or not fitting with what we think is normal. And the same kind of goes for the idea of deviant, the label deviant and criminal profiling. How do you how do you define someone that has a criminal disposition? What do you define as criminal? It comes down to what you define as normal or accepted in, in society. There are some huge cultural issues that arise through the history of uh, uh, profiling. So, <coughs> for example, with the witches... Um, Bullshit. Uh, Cotton Mather also used it during the Salem witch trials, which was basically just mass hysteria, like going after these women. Um, And yeah, it was if you didn't conform, then there was something wrong with you. And they would use symptoms of non-conforming as a way to label uh, your chances of committing these crimes or Mm -hmm. say being um, infested with demons. Uh, also, uh, Charles Darwin, Origin of Species, you start getting the idea of social mm-hmm. Darwinism and mm-hmm. phrenology. Oh, yeah. Oh, such a great moment in scientific history. Oh, yeah. So basically, phrenology is uh, looking at your uh, skull to figure out mm-hmm. uh, characteristics about you as a person. Right, and we have this a lovely Italian criminologist, uh, Caesar Lombroso, who uh, might have been a little racist. He saw criminals as proto-humans, so basically, oh, yeah. 
criminals in his mind are people who are more animalistic Mm -hmm. uh, and they cannot help their animal-like, dirty, whatever behaviors. Mm -hmm. Coincidentally, he, uh, when he was profiling people, he heavily targeted immigrants. Uh Um, And so basically he did a study of 383 criminals and even at the time, people thought that his study was bunk because there's no sort of, no like focus group or anything. Like a control. Yeah. He was basically just like handpicking people that sort of fit his theories. And he's oh, yeah. like, oh, well, you have a jutting forehead or your chin looks like this. Oh, my God, you're black. Mm-hmm. Like you have these criminal animalistic yeah. tendencies. Yeah. Uh, so some of the, uh, things that he would take into account as far to predict your criminality was ears of an unusual size, peculiarities in teeth, an abundance of wrinkles. <coughs> wrinkles are where the sins hide. I know. We got to get grandma. Um, so even now, like, oh, he also thought that they were less sensitive to pain um, which does, has like devastating consequences of people trapped in the criminal justice system at the time. Like, now I don't know this for a fact, but I'm assuming that people might have been able to use this as a way to excuse bad conditions. Mm. Mm. And uh, so, I mean, even now you look at something like a broken windows policing where you have racial profiling as a way to indicate criminal behavior. Yeah. I mean, this has been going on for hundreds of years. Yeah, I think um, in the same, same way that uh, psychiatry or, or mental health institutions can kind of police um, who is excluded from society, who is shunned from it, so can the criminal justice system. And um, the ability to label people and to put them into categories and boxes under the... the the auspices of um, of science, which is supposed to be objective fact, can be a, a dangerous dangerous phenomenon, even to this day. I mean, um, people that are able to diagnose other folks um, with different mental illnesses have a tremendous amount of power over that person's self perception, as well as um, how society treats them and what they're what's done to them, um, maybe even against their will. Um, I'm not coming across here as a, as a Scientologist. Psychiatry is is evil and the, a tool of the man. I'm just saying. Um, I always go back to the, the Soren Kierkegaard quote, um, most famously quoted in Wayne's world, if you label me, you negate me. Um, so the, the power to label always has the power to, um, to, to destroy someone or to, to limit their, their, their humanness. And yeah, it's just very striking how this can be used as a weapon hmm. against marginalized people. Yeah. Um, and as as helpful as it can be when it comes to serial killers that have very idiosyncratic behaviors and methods, such as, um, I mean, the Zodiac Killer, for example, um, it seems like there's always uh, the, the danger of seeing something through the kind of lenses that you wish to see it through. Um, I know the Stanford Prison Experiment, which is, I mean, in every textbook on sociology and um, and psychology that is in college. I mean, I read it, I studied it during my time. Um Recently, it came out that the the main leader of the lead author of the study was um, un, unambiguously using it to further a program or an agenda for prison reform, and that a lot of the uh, the results that he came across or that he pr- produced 
were, were prompted, that, that they were not scientifically um, produced. And that this may invalidate the entire use of this study that was a very influential one on how we view humanity and what roles um, and how roles affect how we think and act. Do you think that criminal profiling is something that we should continue to use or do you think that it might possibly be too ethically sticky? I think um, I think it's a tool in the toolbox. I don't think that it should be used as, all right, we've got this, it's a dead to rights, you're... Um, you're this or you're you're that. Um, I, I'm always a fan of using empirical data to kind of back up assumptions and seeing you know before and after did this person match the um, the description. For Son of Sam, uh, a lot of the sketches did not, um, which led people to believe maybe there are other perpetrators. Um, it just comes down to how close is this to the scientific rigor that we expect from all other scientific fields, and being honest with ourselves about that, I think will help keep it from being a weapon. I guess I just worry about it. Also, have you heard of the CSI effect? So are people going to criminal justice thinking they're going to be a CSI investigator and then realize it's much more tough than they thought? Well, in some ways, yes. So it's uh, people like jurors especially uh, have this issue where they uh, expect a uh, forensic evidence to be a lot more airtight than it actually is. Mm. And I do worry that we do that with criminal profiling. Mm Mm-hmm. Or that that's a very easy uh, thing that we could uh, mm. fall into. Sure. <coughs> Excuse me. Really having the sniffles here in our last couple of minutes. But um, hang in there. Oh God, it's so hard. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I just uh, I don't want anyone to be leaving the show today thinking that this is at all something definite. Um, and that like there are flaws to this. There's also some very like racist past. Mm-hmm. So as fun as it is to uh, talk about these things and as much joy as I get from these cases where criminal profiling realizes that they're going to walk out with a double breasted <laughs> coat that is buttoned. Bingo. Um, I do think that we really do have to be careful. Mm-hmm. Um, well, anyway, uh, Thank you for joining us uh, for this uh, episode of Crime Talk BK. Uh, Please join us next week. Shows every Saturday morning from 11 a.m. to noon. And next week, I'm going to be announcing a huge, wonderful surprise. So please tune in then. Thank you so much for being here. I also just dropped everything in my lap. Fantastic. We actually still have a few more moments, Chris, if you have any. Um, I mean, me. 